Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. sophomore slump territory but a big thank you to all who listened to episode one if you're back here for another round fantastic or if this is your first adventure welcome aboard my name is joel gunderson i'm a writer and reporter for scoopduck.com and boy the day this episode comes out we are now just nine days away from opening kickoff oregon football 2021 and things are starting to get a little bit interesting in eugene this past tuesday Mario Cristobal met with the media, and he made mention that he and the staff are getting close to announcing starters for various positions coming up, and yes, that includes the quarterback position. He said that it'll be under a tight seal as uh, they want to be open and communicative with the players first before they potentially hear things elsewhere, which is how it should be. Most of the position battles we're going to assume are going to be pretty fluid throughout the season. Just because someone is named a starter for the Fresno State game on September 4th, That really means nothing after that day, which is how it should be. Nothing should be guaranteed, and nothing is under Mario Cristobal's watch. He wants guys on their toes every practice, every film session, every game, because that's really the most surefire way to guard against letdown, because these are 18 to 22-year-old kids. It's very natural to have those moments. Now, these kids are also human beings, and they're smart. They know that a guy like Kayvon Thibodeau is not going to lose his job if he has a bad practice. Noah Sewell isn't going to lose his job if he has a bad practice. Mikel Wright isn't going to lose his job if he has a bad day. But outside of those three, there's really not a spot on the roster right now where a guy can feel 100% safe if things start to go south for a bit. And that's the benefit to recruiting the way that Oregon has. You slack off, you don't perform well, There's a guy right behind you that's just as talented, if not more, ready to snatch things away. So, when Mario does announce things, likely this weekend, I would say take it all with a grain of salt for right now. And the other news coming out is, it's something I won't dive into because it's just not a place we need to go. But the bottom line is, barring catastrophe, next Saturday, Autzen will be full. Fans will be in masks, yes, but we'll still be there. And after nearly 20 months of not being able to see a game live, let's just keep that at the forefront. That's what matters. It's not ideal. It's not comfortable. No one wants to wear masks if we didn't have to. But we can be there. Let's not take that part for granted. Back in Autzen, good weather, good opponent, and potentially a very good team. 
the Ducks are about to wrap up their official training camp portion of fall and move into game week prep here. Uh, so I thought it'd be a fun time to bring in a guest who I, I've really wanted to have on since I, I found out I was going to be doing the show. He's someone I reached out to right away because he's just uh, a phenomenal person to listen to and to talk to. And and he knows a thing or two about that that transition when you're heading in the dog days of training camp or, or finishing up and you finally have that opponent that you can start prepping for and putting all your energy into getting ready for them. He played at Oregon during a very interesting time from 2008 to 2012. He came in under Mike Bellotti, which ended up being his final season, and he left right as Mark Helfrich was about ready to be taking over. He's former offensive lineman Nick Cody. Nick is a very outspoken alumni, to say the least. Uh, if you follow him on, on social media, you know he has no qualms about sticking it to the uh, the fan base of a, a particular team up north. His passion for the program is very evident. That's what I'm excited to talk to him about. Someone who, you know, like many of us listeners, truly just loves the program and wants to see it succeed. He's also the host of his own podcast called Once a Duck, which I highly encourage you to check out. The show will be returning in September for its third season, and you can find it the same places you're finding this podcast, all the regulars, Apple, Spotify, etc. I'm also going to post a link to his show in the description of this one so you can more easily find it. And uh, Nick, first off, thanks for coming on, man. Really excited to have you. I want to jump right in to the Oregon-Washington rivalry. It's never too early for that as far as I'm concerned, I don't think. so. And you have a very unique perspective on the rivalry because you were born in Portland you moved to Washington, you came back to Oregon to go to college, now you live again in Seattle. So, and like I said, you played at Oregon when it was, when Oregon was their most dominant, really, that that stretch, the first three, four years that Chip was there, the, the years that Chip was there, and the Huskies were at their bottom out worst. What was it like to face them when they were so bad, and you guys were really becoming a national brand? Yeah, I grew up always uh, right there on the border, uh, a native of good old Brush Prairie, Washington. And uh, so I always had the Portland media market. But uh, growing up, it was always torn between the four Pacific Northwest fan bases. So uh, I, I didn't really focus a lot on college football until I was really getting into my middle and high school years. Growing up, I was so focused on the NFL. And uh, I guess the one thing that really was a great transition for me to go Oregon was I love the Packers. So whenever I was catching Oregon games, sometimes I'd be like, oh, are the Packers playing on a Saturday? And I remember growing up thinking that. And then as I as I became a, a bigger college football fan, uh, it was just awesome to see the rivalries that are up here in the Pacific Northwest and, and the, the passionate fan bases. And that leaked over a lot into my recruitment because they're there were a lot of passionate fan bases just in the area, uh, Vancouver, Washington area. And everywhere I went to camps and stuff, like once I had a recruiting profile out there, everybody had an opinion. But uh, that time was very, very weird, uh, especially University of Washington. I think when they were recruiting me, it was almost like they were kind of uh, they were holding the scholarship there as kind of like a you need to earn this from us, and which you do need to earn a scholarship. But it was just kind of on a level that felt like, OK, I need to come up get on campus before they offer me, check it out, meet them in person. And, and there were schools that were just offering me sight unseen just on game tape. So there was something about that, especially as somebody that grew up in Washington, uh, a Washington native and always a Washingtonian that, you know, it, it, it kind of bugged me a little bit. And, uh, you know, I've, I've lived, you know, even post-college, I live in the Seattle area now, just north. 
about 20, 30 minutes and uh, always lived in the area post just for work and stuff. So it's always been really important to me to to represent the Oregon side of the rivalry up here and be loud and proud because uh, they hate it. And uh, I, I love to let them know. I think right now is the hottest the rivalry's ever been because for the most part, the two programs haven't been good at the same time, but they are now. Both are they're in win now modes. And it really seems like Mario and Jimmy Lake, Washington's head coach, They've never said it out loud, but it's pretty clear that those two don't like each other. So from your perspective now seeing it, how fun is this? Yeah, and, you know, that was something I didn't get to experience in that rivalry because, you know, even the most hype games we had with UW when I was there, they they didn't have near as much to play for as we did. And it truly was in, in Chip Kelly's mantra, you know, a faceless opponent week to week. And uh Crystal ball. I, I would say, I don't think coaches like a lot of other coaches in general, but I just think the, the talk from both sides that, that they've heard through uh, other forms of media has probably bothered one another. I know I was at the UW uh, basketball game where uh, Peyton Pritchard hit the game winner, but at halftime of that, I was sitting there listening to Jimmy Lake talk about dominating the West coast and recruiting and going to have the most attendance of all the spring games in the Pac-12, which unfortunately most most of us didn't even get a spring game. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it, I, I think it's just you hear that as a coach, uh, as opposing coach, especially as the rivalry has gotten closer and closer it, than it's ever been. As you said, I, I think that that definitely adds some heat to it. But man, the the other thing is these fan bases. That's the thing that adds so much to it. Is even as you get here as a coach in the situation that Willie Taggart did. Uh, coming off that 2016 loss, you have to imagine that in that interview process, one of the things you have to explain is this can't happen against Washington. Like that, that I think was what lost a lot of people's trust in Coach Helfrich. It, you know, the 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 Civil War game aside, I think by then there were a lot of people, myself included, that were like, you can't see that happen on the football field where they can just put their foot down on your throat and and embarrass you like that in your own stadium. So. I think that was a huge thing. And then when Cristobal took over, um, you know, and got the job, I think that was a huge centerpiece for him and probably a focus. And if I'm guessing, it probably may go back all the way to his college days to having to share a national title with them in 1991. And I hope that drives a fire that wants him to kick their butts that much more, because uh, I, I think you could see it, especially in 2018, you know, kind of not that that awkward meeting at the end of the game, not wanting to shake hands. You knew that stemmed, you know, from somewhere else other than just the game. And uh, yeah, it's always been always been passionate fan bases. But now I think the levels of football are so high and peaking at the right time that, yeah, it's made this rivalry that much better and hopefully gives us a fantastic game this year. Mario's a little more honest in his when he talks about appreciating rivalries, so should fans believe when coaches come out with, with not not Mario, but other coaches aside, like when they come out and say it's just another game, that's a bunch of BS, right? Like inside the locker room, you know, and the coaches know whose butt or whose ass you want to kick, really, at the end of the day, and who's it's just another game on the schedule. I mean, we we should not listen to this coach speak, right? Uh, I mean, it depends on the team, really, and the personality on the team. And I think a lot of my teams, we had so many guys bought into that, that it truly was. I mean, uh, even our biggest games, I felt relaxed and calm because, 
man, it wasn't going to be as bad as some of those Tuesday or Wednesday practices. You know, <laughs> I mean, that was just, I mean, and that looking back at like, that's not the mindset I had then, but I look back and think now I'm like, yeah, that's probably what I was thinking. Cause those practices and that work we put in make game day so easy. So I guess the mentality, if you, if you break it down like this, the way I see it is that if you are saying those things, you're doing the right things to beat your opponent. You're spending the same level of attention to detail in the film room, in the weight room, on your body. You're focused on you. I think that's the bigger thing. I think that's the bigger takeaway that coaches don't want to actually say is they can't just say, we don't care about this opponent. We're focused on us. Some coaches do. And then the, those ones you're going to ask even more questions to. So a lot, a lot of coaches will go and give you a lot of rhetoric and praise a lot of other guys. But I, I really do love how direct Mario Cristobal is about most things. And uh, yeah, coaches generally are going to, to give you kind of that because it, it's truly the process working. If you are so focused on your opponent each week that you, you get your highs and your lows, you know, you're going to go out and maybe have a less than your standard performance against a school like Stony Brook, you know, or, you know, or you're going to go in so hyped up for a game like in my days on the road at Stanford. If we were too hyped up for that one, we could just shoot ourselves in the leg and then not even have a chance in that game. Just with the momentum and strategy that Stanford had against us, we knew that if we didn't go out and perform and early we sputtered in that game, 2011 Stanford game on the road that you just have to have a confidence and it can't be raising yourself and raising your bar when you meet a different opponent. It's got to be consistent. The more consistent it is, I think the more consistent your success will be. As I mentioned, you arrived in 2008 for your uh, your redshirt freshman season. Mike Bellotti's final season as head coach. Oregon was just coming off that wild 2007 season where they were basically a Dennis Dixon knee injury away from playing for the national championship. Dixon probably also wins the Heisman that year as well, if we're being honest. So what did you walk into? Bilotti was a staple. The coaches around him were staples. But it was pretty clear that they had something special in Chip Kelly, who was, that was his second year's offensive coordinator. He was the real deal. And inside the program, even as a young guy, could you sense that things were starting to shift a bit and that maybe a big change was coming? Yeah, I think that process and you look back at it now and it seems so sudden, but going back then uh, and, and, you know, coming off that, uh, you know, the the holiday bowl game that was Bilotti's last, you weren't sure about any kind of transition, but those things started to fall into place as you got through winter workouts and, you know, coming in as an incoming freshman and having a really good relation with coach Bilotti, it was, uh, it was an interesting transition because, you could see him stepping back in practices and being such a manager that, you know, I got to talk to him. He'd come over sometimes during a scout team and just, you know, a couple guys he'd just come check in on. And uh, we had a good personal relation like that. But when Chip took over, it was fantastic because everything that Bilotti had already put in place in terms of kind of setting our practices to tempo and trying to do things for the right reasons instead of just doing them for traditional reasons and getting the most out of us performance wise chip just took all of that and just ramped it up and as extreme as he could get each year it was some kind of an added bonus he you know learning how to recover learning how to sleep learning proper nutrition all of those things you know you you can try and throw every uh, all of that 
player at once, but it felt like every year we added a huge key to our team that just in terms of, you know, how we went about our schedule, changing the morning practices as soon as Chip took over. I mean, that was huge in terms of we got to game day and we were all rested and recovered while the other team was probably still sore from their Thursday or Friday practices in the evening. So, you know, a lot of those things just came into play. And I believe if you just trust in your system, that's, a huge thing. And I think the system was already in place. So we all knew whoever was going to be the head coach. We, we trusted all the coaches that were there because all the position coaches, you know, that had 30 plus years of experience by the time they left, those guys were true Oregon guys. They recruited us. They brought us in. We knew as long as those guys were there, you know, we were set. So I, I remember there were a couple scares when uh, Chip took over that I know Coach Greatwood was actually looking for a head coaching position in a couple of spots. So I got a little nervous about that. But other than that, I, I was never nervous about, you know, Oregon or, or where our program was headed. In 2008, it, it felt really, really good. And that that trajectory that I saw in recruiting and going to all those 2007 games, you know, I really saw it still going on that same path. And as we did, we, we eventually got to get in the national title picture. So that that's one of those things you come in and you have your heart set on whatever team you pick. Do you think that's the right situation for you for whatever? And I, I wanted to go to a place that was going to compete for a championship. And it, it really did feel like 2008 when Chip took over, not right away in that first game, but as we started getting some ground in that 2009 season, it really felt like, okay, this is this was the right decision, and I, I'm really glad I made it. What was Chip like? He is extremely polarizing. Some people think he's a jerk. Some people love his attitude. Who is he? Like, really, at his core, who who is Chip Kelly? He is extremely efficient in both his words and actions, and uh, I think that rubs a lot of people very wrong. I, I personally loved it as a coach. Um you know, he, he used to call me Nikki. And, it, you know, at first when I was young, it bugged me because I'm like, hey, who is this guy going around? Nikki, Nikki, and he, trying to coach you up. And then I realized, OK, it's just, a, you know, he, he's he's got some quirks to him that, that just either rub people the wrong way or, or they, make, they make him that much more endearing. And to me, it was always so much about he wanted to give us the best opportunity to go out there on game day and not have to worry about anything, but just our jobs. And in football, that's so important because once you start worrying, if anybody else knows what they're doing and you, you get everything all discombobulated, you're wasting a lot of energy and into nothing. So I think he was so huge on performance and not just physical performance, but mental performance. I think he realized the edge in the game that we had was mental because we were not just, you know, in better shape than teams, but when we were in, you know, dog moments where you're just tired and you think, you know, both, both teams are tired late in the fourth quarter. We just could think that much faster because we were used to being put in those situations and being asked hard questions, even in the film room, just being on your toes at all times, being ready for change of situations and chips just, he, he, that those teams really had a lot of his personality in them, especially in the offense, because it was just that tempo. Everything had to be set to a tempo. Everything was done for a purpose. And anything where there were mistakes made, those were addressed very thoroughly and corrected as quickly as possible. So a lot of people, yeah, polarizing is a good word for him. I, I, I love the guy. I always wish him the most success against everybody but Oregon. But, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed uh, playing for him. And I know that, you know, especially guys that came from Oregon that are still coaching with him now, I'm sure they feel the same way. The guy's just always trying to innovate, not just in terms of the X's and O's, 
but you know, making his Jimmy's and Joe's better. That that's so huge in the game of football. People, you can go recruit them, but it, once you get them there, you got to develop them and you got to give them the opportunity to perform at their best. And, you know, there, there's been, you know, coaching staffs and guys I've talked to that, you know, you wear your guys down over the week and try and get them tough and, that we just had a different mentality. We were going to get really tough early in the week and then spend so much focus just trying to recover and play that tough mental game that, the, you know, the Thursdays and Friday practices leading up to a Saturday game. He's been gone for nine seasons now. He's not your head coach anymore. So give it to me straight. Best Chip Kelly story you have. I just say not one particular story because I, I can't think of one, but I would always laugh so hard because when he came in, one of the big changes was he really got our equipment staff involved in the practices to every measure that he could. And those guys were having to work almost as hard as some of at least harder than some of the special teams guys. No offense. I love those guys. Long snappers. You know, it's true. He, he would strap. My favorite part was he would strap basically uh what looked like a big rake device on the back of the equipment guys. And uh, some of the equipment guys that you saw out there picking up the kickoff tees, they weren't the most fit athletes. Some of them, it was a real, real hard time for them. And I remember he would get after them if they were not rushing the quarterback just to make the quarterback have to throw over a tall window. And he would lose his mind sometimes if guys weren't hustling. But he was consistent about that. If you were, you know, the practice squad guy just giving a quick look in a drill, he would occasionally just blow up. And because of how fast he talked, man, it was hilarious. But especially those equipment guys, because you already thought like he's already putting these poor guys through way more than what they probably signed up for. You recently went on John Canzano's radio show here in Portland and talked about Oregon's offensive line. And you said the guys Oregon has now would maul us over when referencing the players that you played with, the offensive linemen you played with. Now, you played under Kelly, whose scheme was obviously different. So the body types were different. You were smaller, quicker. And as much as people talk about Mario's offensive line coaching, and for good reason, if you look just at the stats, the teams that you played on were far more dominant on the ground in in the run game as opposed to what Oregon's doing now. Apples and oranges, obviously, because Mario's goal is not to go lightning quick. Uh, It's like like you said it perfect. It's to maul. That's his goal. He wants to grind teams down and in the second half of games just wear them out. In your mind, which philosophy is more effective? Because it seems that what Mario's trying to do on the line is be prepared for the Ohio States, the Alabamas, the Clemsons. So when Oregon eventually, hopefully does get back to a, a playoff, they're better prepared up front. Because when you guys played, when you get to the big boys, we all know the stories. Oregon struggled up front in the trenches because they just weren't built to handle it. Well, I think what's the the key thing a lot of people don't talk about, and I've experienced from those four, you know, getting to see Oregon go to as many big title games. And, uh, you know, over time, you start to figure out, you know, the real key and strategy there that, that sucked the wind out of us in multiple national title games is there is so much less opportunity to control the tempo when you have as many TV timeouts and you have as many stoppages and, uh, especially I remember the Ohio state game. It just felt like, uh, you know, 2015, the, the first 
full playoffs. I, I, I remember being so frustrated with just how the tempo kept feeling like it was interrupted anytime it started to get going. But Ohio State, every time that they just were able to just run the ball effectively, run over guys, it just sucked the wind out of our offense. And I think there's a good in-between that Coach Cristobal's trying to strike. The key is, is that to, to have the tempo that we did, you have to have a defense that is too deep that you can rely on and you've got to be able to swap guys out because they're they're going to get gassed if we have any three and outs you're going to send out a defense that's basically gotten three seconds on the bench you know like they they got a swig of water and they're back out there so uh that's been one of those things that i think you know that i've been asked a lot why doesn't chip just replicate what he did at oregon at ucla it's like you have to have a lot of key pieces already in place. You know, you don't have the coach Aliotti there. You don't have the def- the defense was so intricate when I was at Oregon um, that you could see anything in practice that, you know, that you'd end up seeing on game day. They, they would run multiple fronts, go from a three man to a four man front, you know, run different linebackers, different places, all kinds of zone blitzes. So there was just a lot already in place in the intricacies. So uh, the big thing is I think the strategy is, how does your offense complement your defense and your team strategy? What, what is that all about? I think getting everybody on the same page in that direction. And I think Mario has that explosiveness on this team, but it's going to be about consistency because especially on the road, you're not always going to be able to get the big completions, completions, big plays you want on a consistent basis and control the tempo. So it's even better if you can just hog the ball, run guys over, get four or five yards down and control the football and control the tempo the way you want it. So there's definitely a balance. If I had to lean though, I mean, I'm going to go for my style all day. I think if you put the right players in that system, I mean, it works because uh, we had a lot of the, a lot of those guys. It just never seemed like enough in those big stage games. And I, I even remember, you know, how many injuries we had at tackle uh, once I was gone of, of guys that really were, you know, NFL or even CFL quality guys, which, you know, having injuries like that. We just didn't have the depth that this team's had. And as soon as you'd go to your backup right guard, you know, you're losing 20 pounds. Whereas you look at this offensive line now, I mean, you might be putting in a guy that's 20 pounds heavier because they still expect him to lose 20 to get down to game shape. So that's just the bodies you're putting in there versus, you know, the bodies we had available. I'm glad you brought up Nick Aliotti because I, I, I've been a long, I've been a fan my whole life. I many times long before you played uh, would be cursing him out very loudly at Autzen Stadium. Uh, but it seemed like when Chip took over, there was a switch in philosophy, obviously not only just with Oregon's offense, but their defense. Do, do you think that Chip, in a way, I don't know, either allowed or forced Aliotti to be more aggressive? Because his, not necessarily his system changed, but just the entire way the defense operated was just way more aggressive. On third, on third down, on third down, not dropping all but three defensive linemen. Yeah, I, I remember everybody giving Coach all crap for that. Um, I, maybe it did. I, I remember when Chip took over, it felt like he gave way more free reign, and that's when we started seeing a lot more. Um, back then, we called them KC fronts, but they would stand up Will Tukuwafu, which is a pretty scary thing. You, you're used to him down close and not having to let him get too much of running startups. But as soon as they started mixing that in and, and kind of having a guy like Kenny Rowe or Will Tukuafu stand up and then run at you full speed at the snap of the ball, that that kind of stuff was, okay, 
they're going to start doing anything. And that, that was that first spring that chip was running things that it felt like the defense was running stuff that, Oh, okay. We haven't, we haven't seen this before. So that, that was always really something that stuck out to me and coach Al, I, I love him. I don't think he got enough credit because uh, his, his coaching style was real rough and he asked so much out of the defense. And there was, there were so many things schematically that, it made us so much better in the offensive film room because, oh, hey, this team we're playing this week does this. Well, our defense did this to us over here in this film clip. <laughs> we already had it. We'd already seen it in practice a bunch because if it had been thought of, Coach Al tried to run it. Yeah, we, we used to uh, uh, pray for a third and two as opposed to a third and 17 because you knew the defense had a much better chance of stopping yeah. <laughs> I remember, I remember that joke even coming in as a freshman, you know, like that was something people heard is just like, oh, just please let him get it to like third and five. <laughs> just anything of anything other than a Hail Mary, because you know, it's getting completed. Uh, you brought up a point I want to circle back to, and I, I hadn't, something I hadn't thought about, but I wanted to touch base with you. How much the 2020 offseason complete shambles across the board, even if Oregon hadn't needed to replace all five offensive linemen, really six when you count uh, Brady Aiello, who's uh, coming off the bench. What does not having an offseason do to an offensive line as a unit? Because there is no position really in sports that relies on cohesiveness the way that you guys do. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can't imagine having Zoom meetings to try and get everybody to see the same front the same way because there's just... There's something about it that, uh, you know, I, I love having Zoom meetings with people. It's been a, it's been an awesome thing I've been able to incorporate during this pandemic. But, man, can't imagine it as an offensive line. I think even bigger physically for the entire team, you could see that, uh, especially in the in the run game, you, we, we'd wear down on both sides when it would get late into the game. And I think that's a huge part of not having the full year round to have that strength and conditioning program, because I just remember so much growth was made in those winter months that no one's around. It's just the team. You're getting up early, working out before school and, you know, going through just some things that at the time you're like, man, this sucks why why are they making this mandatory for us especially as an offensive lineman because you're out there picking up cones and just doing all kinds of things it's like okay if i was just pushing stuff around and lifting weights i'd love that but the athletic training was so much a part of i see now building the durability in joints especially a lot of the plyometric work we were doing was stuff that if you didn't do it you saw those were the guys that started having those dings at the end of the season that just they couldn't get over they couldn't recover as fast they were losing flexibility and explosiveness so those are things i i really noticed now that i thought last season i remember you know even chatting got with guys online early 2020 that were saying oh it's gonna be no big deal i, I think aaron frentress not not to call anybody out love you aaron but i think he was even saying like hey what's the big deal they're still just gonna need like four weeks of camp and then just be able to get out there and yeah there might be some injuries but they're not anymore because there's always injuries in football i was just thinking well i mean maybe the injuries might be the same but the quality of play isn't going to be the same because you're your body to be able to hold up a full football season, it requires putting in that work for all it's all, all full year round and, and any time off, man, it's a detriment to that. So I can only imagine how those players made it, especially an entirely new offensive line coming in, you know, props to them because there were times that they looked like they'd been playing together before. Uh, it's just going to take a little more time and, you know, get all five guys to see the same vision at the same time and react and step as one. And, uh, with the bodies they have now, they're going to be they're going to be in good shape against most teams. 
can Oregon go into Ohio State and win? I mean, realistically, like if you took off your alumni glasses and you just studied studied this team the way they are, knowing what Ohio State is, can they go in and, and pull this thing out? Well, I believe they can. I believe they now have the talent to play with any team. I think the biggest challenge for them is these guys are untested on a true road game. Um, and I still think back to 2018 where you saw this team go into Pullman and that first half, I think 27 to zero, it was just the, the, the just it didn't adapt to the scenario until it was too late. And you can't do that at Ohio state. And just those flashes of that in Arizona from that year, just still give me a lot of worry that you have to show that before I trust that you can go into, you know, a place like the horseshoe and get a victory because, you know, let's, let's not joke about it. Let's be serious. That's yeah. I, if I, even with my fan glasses on, I'm not expecting a win. I, I think a win is possible. I have to definitely see how the quarterback plays in the first week to, to get an idea of how likely I think it is, but Man, I really think they have the team that could do it this year. I think uh, we could throw a lot at them that they aren't expecting and get them on their heels. And with as much you know time off as it seemed like as we've had real um, big packed stadiums, that could also work against you because you get all those fans back in the stadium. They're rowdy. They're excited. And then if you suck the life out of that stadium real quick, they're going to be some booze. And that's not going to be fun to deal with if you're Ohio State. So if I, I think if they go in there and they can get an early lead and then just kind of like Mario, like you said, Mario wanted to wear teams down. I think if they could keep it a close game, it could be ugly, but I think they could do it. What's your personal philosophy on Anthony Brown is the senior. He's got the experience, but from a talent standpoint, it, it's pretty clear that guys like Ty Thompson coming behind him are going to be able to surpass him from that standpoint. This season sets up interesting because after Ohio State, you have Stony Brook, you have Arizona at home, probably the two worst teams on your schedule. Then you have a bye week. To me personally, and I, I've been on the Anthony Brown train as far as this entire season. You stick with the guy. He, he, he came in last year. He could have transferred out. He didn't. But the more I think about it, it kind of sets up like this. You go into Ohio State. He struggles. You put Ty in towards the end of the game. You start him against Stony Brook. You start him against Arizona. Then he's got a bye week. And then you hit the second half of the season running. If if all things are equal, let's say Brown's experience kind of equals out with Ty's talent but inexperience. How do you handle it? How do I handle it is going to be, uh, as I did as an offensive lineman, uh, I expect the guys who watch the tape of who's back there to, to make the best decision, and then I'm going to roll with it, and I probably won't even know until I watch the tape again. So, And it happened like that a lot of times when we made quarterbacks, which is, uh, you know, Nate Costa comes into a game, and, you know, for us, if everything was working the way it was supposed to, we barely knew up front. So for me, I'm going to trust the coach's decision and go with it. If they say Anthony Brown's the man, he's the man. In my own eyes, from what I've limited amount I've seen, you know, from these highlights that get out and from the spring game, uh, I think the best thing I can say is it's a great problem to have the quarterbacks we have right now. And making that decision hard is uh, is a, a real good thing to hear out of these couple scrimmages. So if Ty Thompson is performing that well and, you know, making guys nervous, that's only going to make the team better. And, you know, whatever happens this season, I think uh, – 
you've got the luxury of some guys I think you can trust out there on the field and worse comes worse. And I've been on some teams that have been there. You get to your fifth string quarterback. You don't feel as inept as we did back then. So, Hey, you know, knock on wood, but I think that we're in a real lucky situation where I think I trust, you know, I even trust, you know, Butterfield Ashford, those guys looked really competent in the play spring game. And uh, you know, the plays I've seen and, you know, a limited sample size, but I mean, I think even, you know, when I was there as a freshman, a lot of people had no clue who Jeremiah Mazzoli was. And uh, that that that's a guy that's still playing right now and throws the first touchdown of the CFL season. So, you know, keep in mind, you never know who it's going to be. But when their moment comes, it'll come. And if they're ready for it, that guy's going to step up and they're going to have their moment in Oregon. That's a great place to do it as a quarterback, because we've shown now that you can win the Heisman doing that and just trust guys to do their job. And we've got all the talent at the skill positions and line defense. You could win a Heisman again. So whatever guy it is, they just they just got to be calm, comfortable and command the offense. And I think we'll be all right. So I guess the question begs, then, what is the ceiling for Oregon? Uh, if you consider a ceiling reaching the the kind of level that Alabama football is at, I think we're capable of that. And I think that's what Crystal Ball's probably taken the blueprints from the things he's seen successful there in Tuscaloosa and tried to bring them to Eugene because why not? That's clearly how you win in this college football game. You adapt, you get better, and you continue to recruit at the top levels and you don't settle for anything less. And the closer and closer we get there, I mean, the more I see it, I, I don't think I would have seen – Oregon recruiting at this level, you know, the 2015, you know, even in, even when we were playing in the national title game, I, I don't think, you know, in my mind, I didn't think it was possible to recruit on this level. And now that you're seeing it, just the trajectory continues to go and go. And if they can continue to find success and raise the bar another Pac-12 title and man, another, another big postseason bowl win, it would really, really just continue to raise. And I, I think I could see it you know, dynasties, definitely fan glasses on, but uh, that's me. I think you could, uh, you could take over as soon as Saban decides to call it quits and crystal ball is in a great position to do that with just the, the passion that they put into the recruiting and bringing in guys and showing them that, Hey, this is a place where you can win. And you not now with name, image, and likeness, you can not only win, but you, you can change your family's lives. Nick, I want to thank you again for taking the time to come on, man. This was fantastic. And you know, in the day and age of political correct chatter, I, I think you're a breath of fresh air for Oregon fans. You, you don't go too far, but you love telling it like you see it. You don't hide your excitement or your dismay for the program. You clearly love it. And I think that's sometimes lost as fans and media focus so much, especially now as we focus so much on recruiting. It's all about, can we get this guy? Can we get this guy? What this guy? But when it's all said and done, the choices you made and the choices these kids are making are lifelong. You choose to go to a school. It's not just those three or four years. It's your identity going forward. And it's real obvious that you made the right choice for you. I know Oregon fans love it, and, and we're super excited to have you on. And uh, like I said, you can find Nick on Twitter at JustFollow61. At JustFollow61. It, it's worth it, I promise you. Uh, especially especially as we get closer to November 6th and, and all that stuff pops up and, and we get close to the Oregon-Washington game. I bet you Nick's going to be ramped up a bit uh, and uh, certainly going to probably ring your bell again during Husky Week in November if you're willing to come on. Nick, if, the, if that sounds good, man, we really appreciate you coming on to the uh, second episode here of the Believe in Oregon Football podcast. Sounds good. Take it easy. All right. 
We'll be back again next uh, next Monday. By that point, man, just five days away from from kickoff. Uh, not sure who the guest is going to be yet, but trying to try to focus in on it's game week for us too. It'll be game week for Oregon football players at that point. Obviously, it's game week for us as well. Excited to get everybody ramped up. It's going to be a good season. It's going to be a lot of fun. I think there's some real potential there to be a, to have it be a special season. So thanks again, as always. Two episodes down. Just getting rolling here on the Blue and Oregon Football Podcast. Excited for the future. Excited for the program. Thanks again for, uh, for joining us. And as always, remember these words. It never rains in Austin Stadium. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.